Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, as you can see, I'm not Pastor Kevin. I'm filling in for him this evening while he is enjoying some time away. We're going to continue our study in Genesis. Um, I'm feeling a bit ambitious, so we've got three and a half chapters we're trying to get through this evening. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 15. I know uh, if if you've heard me before... Taking big portions and going quick isn't typically what I do. I definitely follow the Pastor Doug model and take little pieces and like to dig into them, but um, we're going to go a bit quicker. There's a a primary theme that I think is running through these chapters that I just want to kind of hopefully relay to you this evening, and um, I'm just rambling now so they can adjust the the speaker, the microphone, and then we'll get going, but... No, I'm teasing you. Uh, thank you again for being here with us tonight. Those that are watching online, thank you as well for joining us. Let's go ahead and pray again. I know we just did, but um, before I dive into the word, I want to just lift it up to, to God. So Father, we thank you just for another opportunity that we have to open your word, to study your word, Father, to allow your word to speak to us. And Father, we pray that through this, it's not just a study for knowledge, but Father, we pray that as we open your word, it changes our lives. It draws us closer to you. It reveals the truth that you would have for us for today, and it gives us the direction that you would have us to go, Father. So I pray as we open up the scripture and we read about the, the lives of Abraham and Sarah and you know others, that Father, we are able to take lessons that they learned and apply those to our lives. Um, And the Father, again, through this process, we just are drawn closer to you. So I give you this time, I thank you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Kevin brought us through uh, Genesis chapter 14, uh, the, the kind of culminating event there was something that I typically refer to as the Battle of the Nine Kings. And I know that that isn't a technical title of the battle or an official title, but to me it makes it sound more epic. It gives it a little Tolkien flair to it, you know, the Battle of Nine Kings. And anyway, you remember the details of that battle. There were four kings. They went down and attacked five kings, and they were able to defeat the five kings. These uh, defeated kings included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and one of the consequences of their defeat was that some of the people were taken into captivity. And one of those taken into captivity was Abraham's nephew, Lot. So that didn't bode well for the four kings, if you guys remember from last week. They were the victors, and then they went home. Abraham conscripted an army out of his own servants, out of his own household, and he went and he needed to take care of some business. All right, so I kind of envisioned the idea of 
you know, rolling up his sleeves, but in, in their culture, I guess, girding up his loins, thinking this process of, you know, daddy's got to go to work. I got to go take care of some business, which actually that's not a, a fair statement based on the circumstances there with, that, uh, with Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai saying daddy's got to go to work, understanding they don't have kids yet is kind of unfair of me, right? But you get the idea. We put it into our own ideas and, and go from there. So Abram's household, his household army defeats the armies of the four kings. And he's able to free his nephew Lot and free the others. And then the battle, after the battle, the king of Sodom attempts to give Abram the spoils of war, but Abram refuses. Abram was in the midst of his calling. He was committed to serving the Lord. And in verse 22, he responds to the king of Sodom by saying, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He continues on with a pledge that he had made to God that he was going to be fully reliant on the Lord. So chapter 14 ends with Abram standing on a proverbial mountaintop. The victor of a major battle Glory and honor were being given to him from kings of the surrounding areas, but instead of basking in that glory, he redirects everything toward the Lord, God Most High. As Abram understood that everything he had was, or everything that he had and that he was able to accomplish had come from the Lord. The problem with these mountaintops is that when you get to the top and you look out at the landscape, you have to go down the other side, which typically means you end up in a valley. I did a a trek a number of years ago with my brother and my dad through the Wind River Range, and uh, this is a a very steep mountains, a part of the Rocky Mountains um, in Wyoming and Colorado, and you get to the top of one peak, and you're exhausted, and you look out and you realize there's a dozen more peaks I have to get to. You have to go down, and then you have to go up, and then you have to go down. This metaphor, though, is is our life. This is our faith. This is our Christian walk. And so as we're going to see, we're going to kind of touch on some of those mountaintops and valleys this evening. So this is where we're picking up tonight. Abram is beginning to come off of that metaphorical mountaintop. And as we open up the next act into the drama of his life, We will see peaks and valleys as he continues to grow in his faith. We're going to be ambitious. Like I said, we're covering three and a half chapters. Much of the portion of this scripture, though, is narrative. We could slow it down and pull all kinds of great bits out. But as I was mentioning, there is a central theme that we're going to try and really focus in on. Um, There's a theme specifically of of God and his character and how he responds through these chapters. And then there's also a a secondary theme of how man responds and man's character as we go through these chapters. So you're going to be able to hopefully track these two things as we go. And I'll give them to you here in the beginning just so you can kind of keep them in mind as we move through the scripture. So the theme for God through these three and a half chapters is that God is faithful. God shows up. He has promises and he keeps them. The theme for man through these chapters is that he is impatient, makes lots of mistakes while waiting for God to act. So picking up in verse one, chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's a principle when studying the Bible that's called the law of first mention. The idea is that whenever you examine a particular doctrine uh, in the Bible, that you should go back to the place where it is first mentioned in order to get the proper context and to set the proper foundation of that particular doctrine. And while it's a great principle for doctrine, it's also just a simple good practice for words and phrases and other concepts as well. And so as we are here in Genesis, we know that we're going to be dealing naturally with a lot of first mentions. We're dealing with the book of beginnings, and so many things are being, the, the foundation of many things is being laid here. So in this verse, in verse 6, we are dealing with a couple of those firsts, a couple of those first mentions. The first one is the phrase, the Lord, or the word of the Lord came. This phrase is establishing a new element of Abram that we have not yet seen. He is going to be given a prophetic vision, and through the course of these events, he will ultimately be remembered in history as one of God's prophets, among obviously many other things. But God calls Abram a prophet in chapter 20 when he's speaking with Abimelech. So we know that this is a title that he is eventually given. We see that this phrase becomes closely associated with those that are the Lord's prophets. So if you're reading and you, you catch the phrase, the word of the Lord came, there's more than likely something prophetical going to be following that. Abram was not, or excuse me, he was the first prophet mentioned in Genesis, but he's not the actual first prophet in Genesis. I don't usually throw it out there, but does anyone know who the first prophet is? Enoch, Enoch very good. And we learned that with Pastor uh, Doug and Jude when we were going through there. Jude 1.14 reveals that Enoch also prophesied. Genesis doesn't talk about him as a prophet, but we learn that from later on in the New Testament. So, so we see this law of first mention here. The next phrase that is first mentioned in chapter 6 right here is the phrase, fear not. Now, English transla translations sometimes can muddle this concept of the law of first mention because sometimes the, tra the translation doesn't line up. So some of these, for example, the New King James says, do not be afraid instead of fear not. But when we're dealing with the law of first mention, remember, we're going back to the original languages. And so it doesn't matter if it's translated fear not or do not be afraid. In English, those mean the same thing. And you can go back and you can understand that the Hebrew in this uh, sense is the first time that that phrase is mentioned here. It's with Abram. So God opens up the vision with the statement, fear not. There could be several things that Abram is afraid of. 
Not the least of them would be that this is the first time that the Lord is speaking to him in the form of a vision. So that might just be terrifying to any of us that has that, uh, if that were to happen to us. It's never happened to him before. So just that might be what he's afraid of. But he also could be uh, maybe fearful of retaliation. He just won the battle, but those kings could be coming back. It doesn't really go into detail, but we know that the Lord is comforting him with the very first words of of the vision, which is fear not. So when the Lord gives his prophets visions, the details are typically vivid. I imagine a movie playing out in their minds. And in this particular vision, Abram is having a dialogue with the Lord. The Lord tells Abram again to fear not. He then goes on to provide Abram comfort by saying that he is Abram's shield. He is Abram's reward. Basically he's saying, Abram, I got your back. I will protect you. So this is something that we are reminded of all throughout the Bible. God is our protector and our provider. If you are a child of God, then this is your guarantee. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is telling Abram that he is Abram's protection. He is Abram's reward. And he is telling each one of us the same thing. If you are a child of God, he's got you. After God comforts Abram, Abram speaks to God. So this is the first time that the conversation between Abram and God is actually two-sided. Prior to this, Abram had just been listening. But in this vision, he's going to actually engage in dialogue with God. So Abram doesn't even address the shield or reward or the comfort or those comments by God. He doesn't mention or comment on any of that. No, thank you, God, or anything. He goes straight into asking some questions of his own. So I know that I'm too young for the reference I'm about to give. I was talking with Pastor Doug about this earlier, but whenever I read this portion of scripture, I always find myself going to Desi Arnaz and I Love Lucy. When he walks in, he slams the door and he he screams through the house to Lucy, Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. And I'm sorry I didn't do it with an accent, but I didn't want to slaughter it. So the idea is Abram, again, he skips over the comforting things that that God said to him and he goes straight to, God, I've got some questions. You've got some explaining to do. You've promise me some things that haven't actually happened yet. And so Abram hasn't forgotten about what God has said to him. He doesn't think that God is going back on his word, but he hasn't seen any of the promise come to fruition. So from Abram's perspective, God had revealed a great plan. He had made a great promise, but he hasn't done anything else. So Abram was starting to question those, excuse me, those things. Remember, God promised Abram an heir, and that promise came around the time that Abram was 75 years old. So Abram is feeling the pressure of time. Verse 2, it says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram has questions. And they almost start to feel accusatory. He says, you have given me no children. But God offers no rebuke. He offers no correction. 
He doesn't scold Abram for his questions. And keep this in mind as this drama unfolds. This isn't going to be the first time that God responds like this. See, God cared for Abram. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us that we can cast all our cares on God because he cares for us as well. Abram wasn't in a position of disbelief. He was dealing with impatience. He wanted the details, the how and the when of what God was doing. Abram knew that God would keep his promises, but in his mind, he was up against what he believed to be impossible odds. So God gives Abram a clear answer to the questions that he poses. So verse four, he says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. He doesn't even mention the name of the servant. He just simply says, this man, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Your heir will be your son, not your servant. And then verse six, Abram replies, or Abram doesn't reply, but he, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, verse six isn't actually part of the vision. This is Moses, the author, stepping out of the narrative, stepping out of the vision, and letting us as readers understand that Abram had faith in God, and it was this faith that had deemed Abram righteous in the eyes of God. So this verse is considered by many to be the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It is through faith that Abram is viewed as righteous. And there's three key words in this verse. The first one is believe. We could also include that to say faith. Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The second word that's important here is counted. Counted is a fancy or a, a less fancy way, I guess, of saying imputed or to charge to one's account. And so Isaiah 53, 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, what happens is there's a, there's a transaction that takes place when we are placing our faith in Christ. And, and we were seeing this even with Abram. The idea is that our transgressions, our sin, all of the nastiness that we have done, those things are being placed on Christ. They're being charged to his account. He's paying the punishment for those things. And then at the same time, his perfection, his righteousness is being charged to our account when we place our faith in him. And so our price, our punishment, he's receiving, his glory and his eternal life, we're receiving. So there's a transaction that happens that we have no part of other than just simply faith. And then righteousness is the third word, and again, that's perfection. Romans 3.10 tells us that as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So none of us on our own are righteous. None of us can strive for perfection. It's only through Jesus and faith in him that righteousness can be counted to us or imputed to us. 
So it's because of belief that the imputation can happen, and it's because of this imputation that we can be seen as righteous. So for the believer, when God the Father looks at one of us, he sees his son. He sees Jesus' perfection, not our sin. Let me say it again. He sees Jesus' perfection and not our sin. So Paul specifically references Genesis 15, 6, this verse we just read, twice. He references it once in Romans 4, 3, and then again in Galatians 3, 6. And then James quotes it, and then he adds a powerful statement to it as well. So in James 2, chapter 2, verse 23, he says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Belief brought righteousness. Righteousness brought relationship. Relationship brought intimacy with God. And that's where we look at this when we see verse 6 and we understand just where Abram is at. He has placed his faith in God. He has been counted righteous because of that. And he is walking with God in an intimate relationship. So verse 7 We'll see the rest of the vision now. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If I say them fast enough, it sounds like I'm saying them correctly. So, <clears throat> God gives Abram a vision of the covenant that he is making with him. The second part of the vision has Abram collecting animals, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. It has him cutting the mammals in half and then laying them out on the ground with the halves separate from one another. So one over here and one over here. And this is a weird scene. We don't have a lot of context for this process, but Jeremiah 34, 18, along with other non-biblical historical documents, kind of give us a picture. <clears throat> So 34.18 says, <coughs> excuse me, 
and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The context of this verse actually has nothing to do with our study here in Genesis, but it provides a glimpse into the process of what we are seeing here. There's a calf that was cut in two, and these, the men were walking in between those two parts. So basically, the Hebrew word for covenant is also the Hebrew word for cut. And this is why we get phrases like cut a covenant or cut a contract. When two or more parties were entering into a covenant with one another, they would lay out these animal pieces and then they would walk in between them. <clears throat> the animal sections uh, would be laid out and they would actually walk in a figure eight. And as they're walking in this figure eight, they would be reciting the terms of their agreement, the terms of their covenant. And so in this vision, we, it seems that we would have Abram setting up this kind of scene. He's cut these animals. He's separated the, the halves from one another. I think it's funny that it annotates that he didn't cut the birds in half. They just stay there. So, But the next part of the vision then gets prophetic. God is speaking to Abram about his descendants. Remember, this is a guy who doesn't have any children yet. So their future and the land that they're going to possess is kind of what the, the vision's focusing on. God tells Abram that his descendants will travel to a foreign land where they will eventually be enslaved, and this enslavement is going to last for 400 years. After the time of servitude and affliction, God will deliver Abram's descendants, judge the people that treated them harshly, and Abram's descendants will move uh, toward the land that God had promised them with the bounty of the land that they would be leaving. So it's a pretty miraculous vision. God also lets Abram know that he would die at a good old age and at peace. If I ever get a vision from God, I pray that I get that type of ending to my own life added to it as well. He's like, don't worry, whatever else happens, you're gonna die old age, nice, peaceful life. We know, if you know the story of Abram, that it wasn't peace up until his death, but he did die in peace. So God wrapped up the prophetic portion of the vision by repeating the idea that it would be 400 years before Abram's descendants would enter into the land, and he attached an interesting statement. At the very end, he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The freeing of Abram's descendants was actually coordinated with the judgment of the Amorites, a, a people group in the promised land. God's plan included much more than just Abram and his family. God's plan includes all of humanity. His grace and patience are present all throughout history, waiting for people to repent and to turn to him. The last part of the vision is in essence God signing the contract. But this is interesting for a few reasons. So first, and this is again uh, at the very end when we saw the, um, the torch and the, <clears throat> the stove passing through the pieces. God establishes actual boundaries to the land. He's giving this area of land to Abram and he's actually going to give ge geographical boundaries. So from the time of Moses to present day, Israel has never solely possessed the entire land based on the boundaries that are in this vision. And this is very significant because 
This means that God's promise has not yet been completely fulfilled. So that means that it is still a future promise for Israel. And this means that the nation of Israel still has a place in God's future plans. And it's important for us as believers to understand that, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. The second interesting point, though, it ties into that. And the last part of the vision has this smoking oven and the burning torch, and they're passing through the cut animals. And through this vision and other portions of Scripture, we can deduce that those images are representative of God. Abram is not passing through the pieces. So he's not walking through those pieces in the vision. It's just the symbol of God. See, God is making this covenant on his own with Abram. It is unconditional. Abram doesn't even have to agree to it. It's a covenant that God made to him. This land will be your descendants. And again, it works back to that idea that because it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet, that it is a still future promise that will be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. So this is another mountaintop for Abram. He started this chapter coming off the mountaintop of victory, somewhat afraid or worried that he was running out of time for the promises that God had made. But now through this vision, God has shown up. He's reinforced everything that he had already told Abram. He even provided him more detail. But notice the one piece of information that God didn't provide. He didn't tell Abram when this was all going to take place. There was no time frame associated with it. So then we move into chapter 16. As a preface to this chapter, I want to say one thing. Moments of weakness lend themselves to alternative plans. Plans that are not characterized by faith. So keep that in mind as we go through. So chapter 16, we're coming off of that other that mountaintop in chapter 15. Verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I give my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. I chuckle because I heard some of you chuckle. So Abram and Sarai, they've been in Canaan for 10 years now. He's had battles. He's had visions. He's had all kinds of other excitement. But he still hadn't been given the son of promise. And we can see the desperation start to creep back in. We don't know how much time has passed since the covenant vision, but we do know 
it was enough for at least Sarai to begin to feel the pressure of time. So when Sarai presented and Abraham went along with what was not culturally wrong, this idea, they believed that this was the way that they were going to help God fulfill his promise to them. So a maidservant could provide an heir and that child would be associated or considered the child of the wife. And so they're thinking to themselves, why not? Sarai brings up the idea. Abram willingly goes along with it. And we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously you guys know, but the interesting thing about all of this is that even if this was the first time hearing this event, even if I read this and you had never heard this story before, you already knew what this outcome is going to be, right? All of us were sitting there unanimously thinking, don't do it. But we're going to see from this point on, the family of Abram will basically become the equivalent of a trashy reality TV family. From <laughs> so from here on, Abram, his, his son, his, his future generations, they all have a lot of issues. Issues, absolutely. The self-inflicted drama that they're going to be going through is a continuous testament of God's patience and grace in and of itself. The question is, though, couldn't we really, if we are honest, say this about ourselves? We all have moments of weakness that bring about their own set of consequences. Some of those consequences in our lives can be disastrous. Some of those consequences may end up being lifelong. So again, remember, as we're going through this, it's easy to look at the people in the Old Testament and kind of shake our heads at them and be like, oh, I would never do that. But remember that earlier today, you probably did that, <laughs> right? And I know I probably did something similar too. So just keep that in mind. God is continuing to extend them grace. We should extend them grace as well as we go through this, praying that we will be given the same grace when we do the same stupid things. So nevertheless, we are drawn into this drama, and partly it's because it takes our mind out of our own drama and our own circumstances. So Abram, he fell into Adam's sin. And there's a lot of parallels in this chapter that we're not going to get into that would parallel the events leading up to the original sin and the fall. See, instead of leading his wife, he went along with her idea. Abram had been given a vision. He knew God was going to come through, but at some point, he decided that his wife's idea was better, that they could, again, help God fulfill his promise. So neither Abram nor or Sarai were currently living up to their specified responsibilities. Abram wasn't leading, and Sarai was more than happy to lead. When one partner inside a marriage isn't fulfilling their obligations, it's difficult. But when both are shirking their responsibility, it is impossible for that marriage to be healthy, let alone stay intact. So men, I want to speak to, excuse me, to you just for a minute. Here's a quote from another pastor in, in talking about this portion of Scripture in, in, in dealing with his own personal 
life and some of the things that he's dealt with with others. He says, as a pastor, I find many marital problems are caused by passive men who treat their wives more like mother figures, someone who they, or who leads that they are willing to follow. And it is true that sometimes these wives are all too willing to take the lead, but the results are disastrous. Children in homes like these rarely walk with God. The couple grows apart from one another. The man rarely ascends to the heights for which God made him, and the wife is often frustrated in life. See, men, we need to lead our families, and women, you need to let them lead. And that's all I'm going to say. We're not, this isn't a message on that. It's there, so I touched it, but we're going to move on. So Hagar flees. Right, we get up to this portion. She finds out she's pregnant. She takes off. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I, am, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have, been, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. <coughs> so Hagar is pregnant. She's alone and she's fleeing from her master. She's on the way back to her homeland which is Egypt, and she stops to rest and get a drink of water. While she's there, Jesus himself shows up and begins to speak with her. Jesus with a woman at a well. Seems like this is a popular setting for the Lord to do some work. So this is another instance of the law of first mention. The angel of the Lord first appeared to a fleeing Egyptian woman. This phrase can often mean an angelic spokesman speaking on God's behalf, and the, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, or it can also mean that the Lord himself is present in human form, speaking on his own behalf. So contextually, this is what we have here. God in human form, we would refer to him then as Jesus, having an intimate conversation with Hagar. In this conversation, Hagar realizes that God is not just the God of Abram and Sarai, but that he is also her God. He cares for her. He pursued her. And when you realize that God is pursuing you, it changes your entire perspective as it did with Hagar. From Adam and Eve, after they sinned, to Jesus standing in the midst of Jerusalem, crying out that his desire was to gather the people to himself, but they rejected him. 
to even us, God is pursuing humanity. And he pursues us in the midst of our sin. Hagar realized she had had an encounter with the true God. She named the place the well of the living one who sees me. And Hagar, verse 15, bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The Lord told Hagar to go back to Abram and to submit. So she did. Abram then finally had a son. In the midst of all the crazy, Abram and Sarai probably thought that it had all actually worked out. They helped God with his plans, and an heir was born. So Abram called his son Ishmael, as Hagar had told him to. And Ishmael means the God who hears. That's the meaning. And as much as that was a message for Hagar, while she was out in the desert, I think it was also, or even maybe more so, a reminder for Abram and Sarai. See, they had concocted this silly plan. A child was born. The child was named, I hear you, or the God who hears, as a reminder that he had still heard their pleas. God wasn't done with Abram and Sarai. So even in their moment of weakness, in this moment of bad decisions, God still heard them. And he was going to show them that he was faithful and that his plan had not yet unfolded. Then at the end of chapter 16, we see that Abram is 86. So this is roughly 11 years after being called out by God and first being told of the promise of an heir. In Abram's mind, his heir had come. Abram believed he was back on top of another mountain, even though we were able to see that God blessed him while he was actually walking through a valley. But again, there was no rebuke from God, only patience and grace. Abram and Sarai displayed impatience, and God met them with grace. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or were bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So 13 years after Ishmael was born, 24 years after God first called Abram, he shows up again. God identifies himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And this is the first time that this name is used. God is specifically telling Abram that he is majestic and powerful and that he is Abram's supplier. This name to Abram would be speaking volumes. God says, I am God Almighty, and Abram falls on his face. The weight of the circumstance he fully understood. God reinforces that he has made a covenant with Abram, and then he does something unusual. God renames Abram to Abraham. Now, hopefully you're all proud of me. I've done a pretty darn good job so far keeping Abram, Abram, and now I'm going to transition into Abraham. So hopefully I continue saying Abraham at this point and don't revert back to Abram. But the name Abram pointed back to his own father, to his father's heritage and legacy. The name Abraham was pointing directly to the covenant that God had made with him, and it was pointing towards his future. Abraham means the father of many nations. Now think of the interesting conversations this would lead to. When Abraham, I almost when Abraham is done here, he's going to go back and tell everyone that he encountered God. He's going to go tell them that God changed his name to the father of many nations. And this was probably met with silence as everyone processed that Abraham was 99 years old and he only had one son. So how could he possibly be the father of many nations? Then Abraham is going to tell them, God also told me that we all need to get circumcised and that if you refuse, you'll be cut off from his blessings. So these are some interesting conversations that are about to happen for Abraham. And then in verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham again fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. 
He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you bear to you at this time next year. And that's a key one right there. So when he had finished talking with him, this is verse 22, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So God identifies himself as God Almighty. Abraham falls on his, or Abram at that time, falls on his face. God drops all kinds of truth on him and he changes his name. And then God continues by changing Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess, and continues to explain that Sarah, not Hagar, will be the mother of nations. God specifically tells Abram that his wife Sarah will have a baby, that his heir is not going to be Ishmael, who is born out of human effort, but that his heir is going to be born out of supernatural effort, miraculous effort on God's part, and Abraham's barren elderly wife is going to have a baby. So 5,000 years later, me standing here right now, I've heard or read this story a dozen times, well, more than a dozen, dozens of times, and I still want to cheer every time when I find out that Sarah is finally going to have a baby. See, it generates emotion because God is faithful. Sarah is going to get the desire of her heart, what she's always wanted, and it's coming through the form of a miracle because there is absolutely no way she could biologically have this baby. God has shown up. He made her a promise, and he's going to make good of that promise. So there's application for us in these name changes. God called Abram more than two decades prior to this, but now he was moving him toward his calling. As Abraham was fulfilling what God had called him to do, God provided a very literal reminder that Abraham is not to focus on the past, but to focus on where God was leading him. See, we need these reminders as well. We remember where God has brought us from, and we set up and, and we see demonstrated stones of remembrance so we can remember where we've come from, but we don't dwell or focus on where we come from. Instead, we are to be focused on where God is taking us. He has a calling for each one of us. He has a purpose for each one of us. And that's where he's directing us to go. And that's what we should be focused on. Paul writes in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The last thing I want to draw attention to before we move out of chapter 17 
is Abraham's response. We saw he fell on his face. He ended up laughing in amazement when God told him Sarah was going to have a baby. And then once God departed, Abraham immediately got to work. The very same day, he had the men of his entire household circumcised. Abraham didn't wait. He didn't hesitate. He didn't allow complacency to set in. God gave him a directive, and he immediately went about it. Notice, though, again, God didn't tell Abraham when Sarah was going to get pregnant. And here's the sense of humor of God. He tells a 99-year-old man that he's going to have to get his wife pregnant. And then on the very same day, he tells that 99-year-old man he needs to cut off his foreskin. That'll sink in. It'll be funny later. Trust me. It will be funny later when you think about it. So chapter 18. We don't know how much time passed from the day of circumcision to the beginning of this chapter, but we know that these events are relatively close to one another. So in verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, <clears throat> three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So you get a sense in this chapter that Abram or Abraham is finally starting to to get it. Things are starting to finally click for him. He is somewhat aggressively hospitable to these strangers. He's over-anxious. And through the text, it seems apparent that Abraham knew exactly who this trio was. It's funny, in the text, he offers them bread, and then after they agree to bread, he goes about making them a whole meal. But he, he hurried to them, he hurried back to his tent. He ran to the herd. He had his servant hurry. He prepared the meal and he served them. And then he stood by and watched them while they ate. There was an excitement and a respect in the way that Abraham went about all of this. He was genuinely serving the Lord and was taking great pleasure in doing so. And just as a little side note here, he gave them meat and cheese in the same meal. So it wasn't kosher, it wasn't Jewish. Just kind of an interesting thing there. <clears throat> Verse nine, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And there it is, the minute or the moment they've been waiting for. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Seems like Moses really wanted us to remember that part. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And then verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went out with them to set them on their way. So Abraham is standing by while they eat, and this conversation begins. Jesus speaks to Abraham and finally tells him that Sarah is going to have a baby a year from now. We know that Abraham is 100 when Isaac is born. So Abraham would clearly remember the promise of God from the day of circumcision. He knew that he was going to name his son Isaac, which means laughter. And it's funny that the rest of this conversation ends up then focusing on laughter. Sarah is at the door of the tent. She overhears the conversation and she laughs at the thought of having a baby at her age and in, in, in her state. Jesus hears her and questions Abraham. Sarah steps out. She denies that she laughed. And Jesus' response is, yeah, but you did. <laughs> he then gets up and he starts walking towards Sodom. The conversation is over. <coughs> Sarah knew that in about three months, she would be pregnant with a baby boy. And this would be 25 years after the son of promise was declared. 25 years later, he was finally going to be born. Basically, this account is a call to believe that God can do the impossible. He confirmed his promise by a personal visit, and he ate with them to announce that the time was at hand. It was the annunciation of a humanly impossible birth. When something as incredible as this is declared, the human response is consistent. Like Sarah, people are taken off guard. They laugh and then out of fear, deny that they laughed. But God knows human hearts and that Christians often stagger at what he says he can do. What a crazy drama this is. Abraham and Sarah were face to face with Jesus. He confirmed his promise one more time. Sarah couldn't help herself. And she ended up not just laughing, but then immediately lying directly to his face. But again, no rebuke came, just grace. God is faithful in all of his promises. We become impatient. We try to help him unveil his plan. We beg him to work things out in our time rather than in his own. We fail, but he never does. So as you reflect on the events of Abraham and Sarah's lives, examine your own heart. If you were a child of God, what are the promises he has offered you? <clears throat> I'm going to leave you with just a few of them. Colossians 1, 
13 through 14 say, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He promises us righteousness if we are his child. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. He promises us rest. And in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you are one of his children, he is always with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So have you been trying to work God's plan in your own timing or under your own strength? You should answer yes, then knock it off. You don't want your life to become a trashy reality TV show. God has a purpose and he has a calling for each of our lives. Wait on the Lord. Let him lead. Submit. See, as the bride of Christ, it's easy for us to sometimes fall into the same trap that Eve and Sarah fell into. We try to take Jesus' authority as the bridegroom into our own hands And when we do that, we are robbing Jesus of what is his, and we are robbing ourselves of the blessings that he has in store for us. We need to wait on the Lord. And if you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, then you have to go back to Genesis 15, 6, because it's through faith that you can become a child of God. It's through belief that you can be counted righteous. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.